Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hello, and welcome to On Watch by MarketWatch. I'm Jeremy Owens. It's been roughly two years since Elon Musk began buying Twitter stock, seemingly on a whim. In that short period, a lot has happened. Musk agreed to buy Twitter for $44 billion, tried to get out of it, ended up in court, bought Twitter, fired most of its workers, renamed it X, and proceeded to chase away many large advertisers. That's certainly enough drama for a book. But the journalist who is telling the story contends that it starts much earlier, and that Musk is only a co-star. Today, author Kurt Wagner tells us a different Twitter tale. Then we will welcome Financial Faceoff to the podcast. A popular Market Watch column, Financial Faceoff presents two sides of an economic decision and issues a final ruling that everyone always agrees with. Just don't read the comments. Today, we're bringing you a debate that has divided Americans for more than a century. First, let's talk about Twitter. Uh, I mean, X. Jack Dorsey co-founded Twitter and was an early CEO before being forced out. Like any good Silicon Valley entrepreneur, he used that exit as an excuse to start a new company called Square. So it was a shock to many inside and outside the company when Dorsey returned as CEO of Twitter in 2015, while also retaining the same position at Square. That's where longtime journalist Kurt Wagner starts his new book, Battle of the Bird, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and the $44 billion fight for Twitter's soul, which is out this week. In it, Musk is largely a satellite character for the first half, which focuses on Dorsey's struggles with content decisions in the wake of the 2016 election of Donald Trump. But it wasn't politics that finally broke Dorsey and led to Musk's reign. It was Wall Street. When activist investor Elliott Management became Twitter's largest shareholder in 2020, Dorsey deftly saved his job, but became disillusioned to the point of eventually quitting as CEO. Battle of the Bird offers an in-depth look at these two leaders of Twitter, who couldn't be more different. The book portrays Musk and Dorsey as opposites. Dorsey is a boss who connects emotionally to workers, but struggles to affect any actual change in the organization. Musk is the change agent executive who acts with no regards to anyone else's emotions. Yet they worked together to ensure that Musk took control of the company that Dorsey built. Kurt Wagner joins us to discuss how that change in power came about and Musk's first year at the company. We refer to the platform as both Twitter and X and discuss whether it will survive the years to come. You know, Kurt, when thinking about the tale of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, I tend to go back to when it all started early 2022 when he started buying Twitter stock. But your book starts much earlier than that, back in the summer of 2015, when Jack Dorsey returned as CEO of Twitter. Why was that so important to you in telling this story? I didn't feel like you could fully understand why Elon showed up to buy Twitter and why Twitter was in a position to be bought without understanding some of this history, right? Including who Jack Dorsey is, how he operates, the culture that he built at Twitter, his relationship with Elon, like all of those things to me sort of felt key to fully understanding and making sense of why Elon Musk showing up at Twitter's doorstep made sense. 
Yeah, and it really did bring back some things that I barely remembered. And the biggest thing I saw in there that really just made my brain explode a little bit was thinking back to activist investor Elliot Management coming after Twitter the first quarter of 2020. That ended up in your telling of this story being a quite a crucial moment, a critical moment for Twitter and really what pushed it toward what happened in 2022 when Elon came aboard. Can you talk about that a little bit and why it was so critical to this story? So I think there's two things that happened in that moment. The first is that was a really taxing experience for Jack Dorsey, right? This idea of these activists coming, gunning for his job, essentially saying publicly, this guy is not doing a good job of running the company he created. My understanding is that it impacted him personally, right? And we saw later on, he sort of admitted this, that was the moment he knew he had to leave Twitter. And so part of why I wanted to tell that was it feels like the first domino to fall sort of in this like Elon thing, because when Jack leaves, it creates this power vacuum where the founder's not there anymore and it sort of opens the door for Elon to come in. So that's number one. But number two, I mean, when Elon ultimately showed up to acquire Twitter, he was really playing the same playbook that Elliott Management had done two years prior, right? I mean, he bought a sizable stake of the company in private. He showed up publicly suddenly as their biggest shareholder and forced them to the table to make changes. And that's exactly what Elliott did. They bought a billion plus dollar stake of Twitter. They came forward and said, hey, we're not happy with the way this is running. We're now a huge shareholder. You got to listen to us. And what they were able to force incredible change in a short amount of time. And it wasn't, you know, it was less than two years later that Jack was taking his leave of Twitter and then going behind the scenes to talk to Elon. And the other really interesting thing from that moment is that Jack was fighting for Elon Musk to be put on the Twitter board. As they were reshaping the board, Elliot had asked for new board members. And in that process, Jack Dorsey was saying we should bring Elon Musk on the board. And the rest of the board just kind of said, nah, dude, that doesn't help at this moment. Yeah, that's right. And my understanding is he wasn't even seriously considered for the board, right? So it's not just that Jack is suggesting this and, you know, the board is like, well, let's put some thought into this and did their homework. I, I think the general consensus was basically like, no, this isn't going to happen. We know from the text messages that would later come out in the legal situation here that Jack, again, felt betrayed by that. He texted Elon, hey, I tried to get you on the board. The board wouldn't go for it. But like I tried my hardest. And I think those are the moments that sort of added up that ultimately kind of led him to side with Elon on this whole acquisition thing a few years later. Jack ends up leaving as CEO. His hand-picked successor takes over as CEO. He, he has his whole management team that he had built in place. And then he starts talking to Elon. What did you take from the court paperwork that showed the discussions happening between Jack and Elon? And do you feel in the end that Jack is happy with Elon taking over and continues to be happy? You know, it's interesting because I have never been a founder. But I find that tech founders often respect other tech founders. They know what they've gone through. They've had this sort of shared moment. And it's hard for me to imagine that if Jack Dorsey, who's he's friendly with Elon, by the way, like they're buds, they've hung out. If Jack Dorsey had gone to Elon and said, hey, man, I know you might be interested here, but like, I don't think you should take this company. I founded this company and here are the reasons not to. It's just hard for me to imagine Elon being like, OK, cool, thanks, but I'm going to ignore you. I have to feel that Jack Dorsey's endorsement of this, his encouragement of Elon really gave him a much bigger opening to get something done than it would have otherwise. And so that's why I feel like this back channeling is so important to document is like, yes, Jack did just have one vote. Yes, he was just one kind of bird chirping in Elon's ear. But at the same time, 
I think like having the endorsement and the encouragement of the co-founder of the company you're trying to take over means a lot. And the fact that Jack was so encouraging of Elon's takeover, I think is a huge reason it probably got done. The second half of the book is Elon buying Twitter, taking over Twitter, the moves he makes. A lot of that was very public. What did you really find as you were going back through that time period and trying to report it out that might have slipped through the cracks? What do you think was most important in that time period when all of that was happening that you could really point to and say, well, that's something that is going to matter as this goes on? I mean, there's a great anecdote. It happens about a week after Elon takes over. And at this point, advertisers have really started to pause spending on Twitter. They're starting to get nervous. You know, what does Elon mean when he says, like, the woke mind virus? Or what does Elon mean when he says free speech? Like, what does that look like? Let's put a pause here and find out. And Elon, in this anecdote, Elon's pretty pissed, right? Because he's going, what the heck? I'm bringing free speech back to this platform. I haven't technically changed any of the rules yet. And yet all these advertisers are pausing. I don't get it. And he tweets, which is how he usually gets himself in the trouble. He tweets something about going thermonuclear on advertisers who are pausing spending, right? I'm going to a thermonuclear name and shame, I believe is what it was. And his head of sales speaks to him and she says, you know, Elon, you can't go to war with advertisers. And he goes, oh, I'll go to war and I win wars. I love that anecdote because it kind of gives you this glimpse into his mindset, right? Which is that anyone who's not immediately in support of whatever kind of his version of free speech looks like is now an enemy and someone to be at war with. This is one week in, right? And now fast forward 16 months or whatever it's been, and he's still doing the same thing, going after Disney, telling advertisers to go, you know, F themselves on stage at a conference. Like the things that we saw one week into Elon's tenure are the same things we're seeing 16 months later. But I think it's just those types of moments that are sort of like a glimpse into the future of where this thing was going, a little foreshadowing, if you will. Right. And that's kind of the question you have at the end of this book, obviously, going forward is what happens now, right? You don't ever want to bet against Elon Musk because he has overcome people betting against him and his other companies time and time again. But he still doesn't seem to understand what it takes to run an advertising based business. And he has not yet been successful in making X a business reliant on other forms of revenue. So what is the path? for Elon to succeed with, you know, this thing he paid $44 billion for and is now would be lucky to be valued at $20 billion, maybe. Right. I mean, it's hard to imagine a different business beyond advertising simply because they've been thinking about that for years and haven't haven't made it stick. We know that subscriptions would be a logical one, but that has already been tried and did not catch on at all. So they'd have to really revamp the subscription service or the offering to make that something that's possible. One thing that could work, and I say could very reluctantly, is this, you may have noticed they've sort of tried to pivot into like professionally produced video content. So they're doing like a deal with Don Lemon and a deal with the WWE. And they're trying to kind of create almost like TV, but for Twitter. And 
if you are a brand advertiser and you're reluctant to spend on Twitter, the one time you might is if you know your ad is running alongside content that is professionally produced by someone else. And that is the only one that I can see sort of like right now that they're working on that I'm like, okay, at the very least on paper, I could see where this goes. This is not a new strategy for Twitter. And the first time around, it did not end super well. With advertising revenue declining, is there a path to success for X? Could the platform actually die? And what would it mean if it did die? Well, I think the business at X right now is clearly not going well. We've heard Elon admit publicly that they're not cash flow positive right now. Their advertising revenue is down significantly from where it was two years ago. And so by all those measures, we know that Elon is sort of paying out of pocket to keep this thing going. When you think about, okay, well, is there a scenario in which Twitter does not exist and how do we get there? The answer is no, as long as Elon wants to keep it running, right? He has enough money to sort of like foot this bill as long as he wants. I think the question is, will he get tired of doing that? Will he get distracted by something else? Will he get exhausted of having to spend a billion dollars of his own money every year to like deal with the headache of running Twitter? I'm not sure he has enough money, right? Like I, I know he's one of the richest men in the world, but a lot of that money is on paper. And he sold a lot of Tesla stock to finance the original acquisition of Twitter, as he explained in SEC disclosures. He's also had to disclose that he has used Tesla stock as collateral in loans. The Wall Street Journal reported that he borrowed a billion dollars from SpaceX during this process. And the big thing now is that a Delaware court has stripped him of his huge multi-billion dollar executive compensation package. So while he does have a lot of money on paper, I'm, I'm struggling to see if he has enough cash or enough avenues to cash to really finance this on his own. Right. And I think I think you bring up a really important point, which is that a lot of his Tesla stock is tied up as collateral, essentially, for other loans and things that he has taken out. So maybe it's not quite as liquid as it seems. I think it serves, you know, to answer maybe the second part of this question, which is like, OK, let's pretend it does go under X disappears. Why does that matter? Right. And I think in 2024, that's a pretty valid question. Right. Like, are we at the point where these social platforms are serving the same sort of important service to connect people in the way that they did maybe 10 years ago when everyone was sort of like just joining and it was coming onto the internet and things like that. But I think about X and where it sort of fits in a unique place is like the public speed at which information moves on X. I mean, Jeremy, you know this, like it's changed our entire industry. It's changed the entire media industry and it's hard to imagine ever going back, right? And the speed at which people get at their information could be dramatically impacted if X goes away. I'm not sure if we're necessarily going to like lose, you know, the health of the public discourse or whatever. It doesn't doesn't really feel like that's at risk here, but I do find that despite everything, I can still get some, you know, information quite quickly on X that you just can't get anywhere else. And that's gotten worse, I think, since he took over. But I still think it's a value prop that Twitter provides. Well, I'm still on that platform and waiting around to see what happens. Thanks so much for taking the time to tell us how we got to this point, Kurt. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. We reached out to both Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk for comment on the release of Kurt's book, but didn't hear back. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, a financial face-off. Stay with us. 
This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income in portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principal is possible. Welcome back to On Watch by Market Watch. Before the break, we talked with author Kurt Wagner about how Jack Dorsey's Twitter became Elon Musk's ex. Now we're bringing you a new segment, Financial Face-Off, a Market Watch feature in which we debate to help you make more informed financial decisions. Today, I'm going to act as the referee and judge for an age-old debate, cats versus dogs. Now, while this is a debate that can take many angles, we're focusing today on the financial reality of owning one of these two pets. Obviously, there are also factors that go into cat or dog ownership that are harder to put a price tag on, including emotional connection. But we're focused here, as we typically are at MarketWatch, on the money. Before we begin, let me stress that despite being a proud University of Georgia Bulldog, I can be an impartial overseer of this debate. I own both a black cat named Ozzy and a fat gray pit bull named Radar, whose snoring has to be edited out of this podcast constantly. Joining us today to attempt to sway me to their side is the creator of Financial Faceoff and MarketWatch's personal finance editor, Leslie Albrecht, who'll be arguing for the dogs, and news editor Nicole Pesci, who'll be fighting for them felines. So let's turn to our panelists now. We're going to start with cats and MarketWatch news editor Nicole Pesci. Well, for full disclosure, let me just share that I am a cat owner now, but I have grown up having dogs. I do love them both. But I got to say, you know, one of the key reasons that I have a cat right now and not a dog is that my tabby fits into my life financially in just a much better way. First up, cats are smaller, right? So that makes them less expensive to take care of in a lot of different ways. They're generally less expensive to buy or adopt up front, and their medical expenses are often less. A Rover.com's 2023 Cost of Pet Parenthood survey had broken down the cost of cat ownership versus dog ownership. And guess which one clawed the least cash? Cats. Thank you very much. The report put the annual cost of owning a cat, including your food, your litter, and your toys, to ranging between 325 to maybe 1600 on the high end. Of course, we all know we could spend a lot less or a lot more, but these were just averages. And then the annual essentials for owning a dog were twice as much, beginning at 610 a year on the low end and up to over $3,500 on the high end. Now, with cats being smaller, they generally eat less food than dogs do, so that is saving you money. Cats are also famously low maintenance. Do you need to walk a cat? No, no, you do not. You can just leave your cat at home while you're at work. You don't have to worry about hiring a cat sitter or a cat walker the way you're going to have to do with a dog. And while dog walkers can be cheap, a rover you know, can put them starting at maybe $20 a walk on the low end. There was a CBS News report earlier this year that a New York City dog owner was complaining about paying over $600 a month to get their dog walked. And let's also talk housing. If you're renting, it could be a lot easier to find an apartment that's going to be cat-friendly than dog-friendly. And when I was recently apartment hunting, I was seeing a lot of sorry, no dogs allowed signs and really nothing with cats. So, I mean, my choice of a cat as a pet wasn't literally shutting doors for me. So, you know, we love them both. It's an emotional decision. But if you're really just looking at the money, and this is financial face-off, and we're talking dollars and cents, cats make a lot more financial sense than dogs. 
And now our canine combatant, Leslie Albrecht, tells us why dogs are the better option if you're looking at your checkbook. Jeremy, the phrase canine combatant implies that I am a dog, <laughs> but I will let that slide. <laughs> our combatant for the canines, how's that? <laughs> Okay, that sounds good. Um, yes, I'm happy here to represent the dogs in this fight, which is a very important decision for people. And Nicole, you talked about the smallness of cats and how they're a bargain. But at Market Watch, we like to focus on things that are good investments. And dogs are a great investment. I fully acknowledge that they are more expensive to own and maintain than cats are. But listen, they're a great investment because owning a dog forces you to do three activities that are good for human beings. Number one, they make you go outside. You have to walk the dog. Being outside, being in fresh air, being around nature, that ups your chances of experiencing a concept known as soft fascination, which basically lets your brain relax as you look at things like trees. And that makes you happy. Number two, you have to walk the dog, which is the best form of exercise will help you live longer, also improves your mental health and happiness, and your acuity and focus. Number three, dogs make you interact with other people in your neighborhood because you take them to the dog park and then, you know, you have to, like, talk to the other owners and say, is your dog friendly? Yes, my dog is friendly. Can they play together? Since we got a dog, I have made so many friends in my neighborhood. I do not know their names. I know their dog's names. But you know what? I have a guaranteed smile in my life every day because of those interactions. So even though dogs cost more up front, I think the long-term ROI on the DOG is undeniable. Excellent arguments. I can see the passion on both sides. A couple of follow-ups quickly here. Now, we had a bunch of numbers there from Nicole, but I think that's a baseline. So I, my questions to both of you will be about extra above that baseline. And the number one thing for me with dogs, Leslie, is their capability to destroy just about everything in my entire house. And that's not something you typically put on a, on a budget line and can be a catastrophic. How do you put that possibility either from dog destroying everything you own or, or even from an emergency vet visit with that return on investment thesis that you put forward? Okay. I'm glad you asked that question. And I fully acknowledge that dogs do things like chew the bottoms of chairs and destroy socks and underwear and all the rest of your clothes. And my entire bookshelf, I'll point out. Your entire bookshelf. But here's what's happening when your dog is destroying your possessions. You know what's good about that? It's creating memories for you and your family. It's creating stories that you're going to tell each other about the time that Cosmo ate all of the socks, and you're going to laugh about it for years to come. Again, it's a return on your investment. It's going to improve your mental health. Okay, I will, I will put destroying my bookshelf as improving my mental health on my list of things I've learned from Leslie Albrecht. Now we move to Nicole. And Nicole, a similar question for you. You know, cat owners tend to go a little bit overboard sometimes. I, I do know people who knit and purchase cat clothing and other elements, uh, other products for their cats. So how do you see that as a possibility, again, for extra expenses above and beyond the kind of baseline that you laid out for us? Sure. Well, first of all, when we're talking about those those fun additional expenditures like sweaters and toys and whatnot, dog owners are equally in that camp along with cat people. 
But as far as additional expenditures like emergency vet bills or things like that, I have some more Rover.com data here, too. And for additional cat expenses like that, their figure for the year ranges between $1,170 a year to $3,600 a year for cats. For dogs, it starts at $1,390 a year up to over four grand. So even with these kind of emergency expenses and optional expenses, dogs are more expensive in that regard. Okay, and that is it for our arguments, and it is time for referee and judge Jeremy Owens to weigh in and say which side I think won this debate. And honestly, it is financial face-off, so I think there's an obvious winner here, and it is cats. If you're looking for just (laughs) money, then it's cats, but I want to bring this up. If you're only worried about money when obtaining a pet, then you should probably go for a hamster or a gerbil, a a lizard maybe, or a snake. There are many other cheaper animals if you want to bring a pet into your home than a cat. And that's it for Financial Faceoff today. If you agree or disagree with my verdict, please let us know. Send us an email, or if you're a listener on Spotify, answer our poll about who won this round. And if you have any ideas for a future financial face-off, let us know that too. One more thing before we go. If you are thinking about getting any kind of pet, please visit your local animal shelter. Many animals need a home. Adopt. Don't shop. Nicole, Leslie, thank you so much for your arguments today. Go home and pet those cute little pets right on the head for me. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. And that's it for this episode. Thanks to Kurt Wagner. His book is Battle for the Bird, and it's out this week. Thanks also to Nicole Pesci and Leslie Albrecht. To keep following the latest on Twitter and to read more financial face-offs, head to marketwatch.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and please do. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. It really helps others discover the show. And let us know what you want to hear from us. You can reach us at onwatch at marketwatch.com. And if you're a listener on Spotify, be sure to answer this week's poll. The show is hosted by me, Jeremy Owens, and produced by Meta Lutzhoft and Katie Ferguson, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. We'll be back next week with a new episode, and until then, we'll be watching. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.